20 drivers started the 2022 F1 season. And while there may be some familiar faces on the track, if you're new to F1, it can be hard getting up to speed with their incredible journeys. In this episode, we introduce you to some of our favorite names and stories on the 2022 grid. This is Unlapped. I genuinely think about half the people I know who watch Formula One still think Lewis Hamilton. They consider him an eight-time world champion. For the next 10 years or so of Formula One, it's going to be Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris and George Russell. It's hard to tell people over and over again, this guy used to be amazing because he did and it's just so far from where we see him week on week now. He's a much more attractive Percy Weasley uh, from Harry Potter, if you get that reference. That's a much um, better reference. Be That's a much better reference than mine. <laughs> Welcome into Unlapped, our new F1 show where we talk about everything Formula One. I'm Katie George, joined by Nate Saunders and Lawrence Edmondson, two of our F1 experts here at ESPN. And we're back with another episode. If you didn't catch episode one, F1 for newbies, then go check that out. I uh, never expected that we would hit bowel movements in uh, the first episode. Alas, Nate, Lawrence, here we are. Well, yeah, you called us experts. I mean, I, I hope people don't think we're just experts on their bowel movements. I mean, it's just an extra part of what we, hopefully what we know about Formula One. But yeah, I was pretty impressed that we managed to cover that off straight away. I mean, what a, what a way to get into Formula One. And a question that I always ask myself as well. So yeah, I think it was an important one to answer. Yeah, setting the bar high. I don't really know where we go from here. But um, <laughs> yeah, with some of the names we're going to talk about today, there might be a few more stories, a few little more kind of details we can uh, leak out about what these drivers get up to in the car, out of the car. Should be fun. It's a burning question, though. Fans want to know, do they go to the bathroom in their suits? Because sometimes they're in the car for uh, quite a long time. All right, before we get going here, remember, like this video, leave a comment letting us know what you want to hear more of, if you have any questions, uh, or maybe what you want less of. And of course, subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. Last week, we gave our F1 fans a little bit of an intro, and it got a little weird, but we didn't really touch on the most important aspects of motorsport, and that's the drivers. So this week, guys, I just want to take a deep dive into some of your favorite guys on the grid. Tell some stories because you guys get to have conversations with these guys one-on-one. -on -one. You've gotten to know them in depth over the years of covering F1 for the both of you. And, you know, just look at how they entered the sport and, and where they are currently. So it's going to be a little bit of speed dating, if you will. So I feel like uh, we should start with the 2021 world champion, uh, Lewis Hamilton, if that's yeah. okay with you guys. Or, uh, you know, I'm a Lewis yeah. Hamilton guy. So you're going to you're going to you're putting us on a very controversial starting point there, Katie, with people here, because that's a very controversial <laughs> statement. I think I genuinely think about half the people I know who watch Formula One still think Lewis Hamilton. They consider him an eight time world champion. And maybe that's maybe that's fair. I don't know. But um, yeah. What do you think, Lawrence? We were both there, right? Like it felt at the time like he should have been the eight time champ. Yeah, it, it did a bit. And I'm. <laughs> We had recent news that Michael Massey, who was the race director, who basically decided who would be world champion last year, uh, has left the FIA. And like even now, I get direct messages after writing that story about what they think about Michael Massey, what they think about Lewis not having the title, what they think about Max Verstappen. It, it, I don't think this is ever going to go away. And it's always going to be a part of both of their stories, uh, both Max Verstappen, that first world championship, and then Lewis, will he ever get the eighth one? We don't know at this stage. But if he doesn't, then that's going to be there the whole time but um yeah it's uh it's certainly a controversial place to start so who are we going to go with max or lewis we're going to go with max because that's only fair i just think that i'm still a little bit upset and salty about it um but yeah i hope that he gets the eighth i mean we've already heard christian horner 
Red Bull's team principal make the mistake calling him an eight world time, eight time world champion. Charlotte Claire has also made that mistake. So even in their minds on the grid, they feel like maybe it was unfair, but we'll start with Max because he is the 2021 world champion. Lawrence, you actually had a chance to sit down with Max before the Miami Grand Prix. Can I just talk us through, you know, what Max is like on the grid, off the grid and, and how he got such an incredible start in the sport. Yeah, I think a lot of people look at Max as quite a controversial and divisive character, but when you meet him in person, he's, he's really not like that. He's incredibly friendly. And in this interview I did, uh, which I actually did the race before in Italy, he was incredibly open with me. And uh, one of the things we talked about was his early karting career and um, how it all started. And his story starts at a go-kart track. He was four and a half years old and he saw another kid going around in a go-kart. And this other kid was four years old. He turned around to his mom and said, that's not fair. You know, you said I can't go go-karting because I'm too young. Yet here's this kid at four years old out there on track. Why can't I do the same? So um, at that point, he kind of twisted his parents' arms and they um, they bought him a go-kart and the story started there. Um, the story which I was actually talking to Max about in, in Italy for that interview was um, about a time when he was 14 years old and he was uh, fighting for a championship. And he was by far the fastest kid out there. And this was often the case with Max in go-karts. He had just demolished the field. And this was the case. It was in southern Italy. And there he was in the race, uh, got overtaken. No problem there. Max is an adept overtaker. He knew he was fast enough. He would get back. Went to overtake again. Took both karts out of the race. It was completely Max's fault. Max went back to his father, Jos. Now, Jos is such an important figure in Max's story. He's an XF1 driver. He knew everything that F1 drivers needed from his own personal experience uh, from a young age to, to kind of get to the level that he wanted Max to get to, which was world champion, of course. And so um, Jos was furious when Max crashed. And, uh, and going back home that evening, they drove from southern Italy all the way back to the Netherlands. Uh, Max was trying to apologize to his dad. And eventually his dad just stopped at a service station and said, get out, get out of the car. I'm leaving you here. And he did. And he drove off. And there was little Max left 14 years old to fend for himself at a service station. Fortunately, as the story goes, Jos turned around, came back, picked him up, took him all the way back to the Netherlands, where they didn't speak properly again for about a week or so. Um, but I only tell the story because it does kind of, um, says a lot about Max. Now, Max looks back at that now, says it was a character-building experience. I think it's part of what's made him so tough on track as well as off track. Um, but it's, I think it's also, his whole story is divisive. Some people will hear that story and be shocked and feel like, you know, something should be done and Jos, you know, should have been held to account for it. But this is what Max is all about. There's just this divisive character. And we see it throughout, right up to last year when he was racing Lewis Hamilton and he would not give a single inch. In fact, he would go way over the line at times just to hold a position. So, yeah, I mean, that's Max in a nutshell. I tried to say a bit of about his background just to kind of uh, give you an idea of why he's a guy he is. But, um, yeah, he's, he's undoubtedly one of the best drivers uh, in the world right now. And I think he's showing that uh, top of the championship and, of course, world champion. Nate, what impresses you most about what you've seen from him just this season coming off that championship? I think one thing that's always stood out with Max is, like, I've said this to Lawrence before when we've, um, when we've been chatting about him in the media centre, is I always think that Max is one of the only people in the paddock who doesn't quite get what all the fuss is about with him and with us talking about him. And that certainly was the case when he was younger. So he made his debut at 17, and he was so young when he made his debut, they've actually changed the rules now that you can't make your debut until you're 18. So he's mm. basically locked in as F1's youngest ever driver, um, because of that there's always been this huge hype around him and he's just never really you know a lot of questions that we ask you know are, you know are you going to approach this race differently with lewis which we asked him a lot last year um you know do, are you are you feeling the pressure ahead of a title decider he just always 
has exactly the same demeanor when he answers those questions. He's just like, yeah, it's just another race. And when he won, when he won the championship last year, he said something along the lines of, well, I feel like I've completed F1 now, you know, I've got the championship, anything else will be a bonus. You know, he's not, he's not someone that is that obsessed with records or anything like that. He's just kind of like, mm -hmm. I just love racing. Like Lawrence said, he's been doing it for so long. And he is quite a remarkable figure for that reason. I think that um, I completely agree with what Lawrence said as well, that the persona that I think a lot of people have of him, I've never seen that when I've asked him questions in media, se in media sessions. He's always been very accommodating, very nice, um, and always tries to give you a good answer, which wasn't maybe the case when he was younger. When he was 17, 18, he was exactly like an 18-year-old kid. You'd ask him a question, the answer would be yes or no. So you'd ask Great. a follow-up and, you know, we're, we're all journalists here. We know how frustrating it is when someone doesn't give you an answer, but you sit down with him for 10 minutes and his answers would be one or two words. And you're like, I didn't prepare enough questions for this kid. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to start thinking on my feet here, which I'm not the best at doing sometimes. So he's got a lot better from there. And one, one of the things that's interesting with Max is we've seen him grow up with F1. He was quite, yeah. I think he was quite rash when he first started out. He was very he felt like kind of an unpolished gem at the beginning. You know, he had a lot of incidents and stuff and would sometimes just be like, wasn't my fault when clearly it was. Um, Zandvoort last year stands out for me as one of the most impressive races I've ever seen because it was his home race, this huge pressure around him. You know, he's leading the championship. That race came back purely for Verstappen and he was just basically metronomic all weekend. It was just robotic pace out in front. He just was getting quicker and quicker and quicker. And I think Christian Horner said at the time, he said, Max hasn't even flinched at any point he's just been like it's just another race and um so you know they say built differently don't they about a lot of athletes yeah. i've always felt that with with max you know he's he's very unlike anyone we've ever seen before and um i think we're seeing that now because under any kind of pressure he just doesn't really we don't really see him ever capitulate under pressure which um i guess is what has made him so good when he's had that car so the fact that this year he's almost set the bar higher than he did last year i think it's been so impressive um, and I actually think he's going to end whenever he decides to to quit. He's going to have a lot of championships under his belt. I think the longer he goes, the more chance he's got of rewriting one of those Lewis records. But we'll see. You know, he might get to twenty twenty eight and think I've been doing this for so long ah. now. That's what his contract goes to, and just say, you know what, I'm I'm kind of done here. And I wouldn't put it past Max doing that either because I don't think the the idea of being a ten time world champion or having more championships than anyone really has a sway with him like it might have done with other drivers so um yeah but he's a remarkable talent and um it's it's kind of scary that he's now got the best car um and he's so young because i feel like he's going to be at the front of races for a very long time now until he decides to stop you know you often hear people make comparisons to these drivers to fighter pilots they just have no pulse mm. and and max certainly i think is is a great example of that and it's funny you mentioning him as a young guy who doesn't give maybe the greatest answers. And he certainly evolved um, because he's just been in it for so long at this point, Lewis Hamilton always, I think gives a, a really thoughtful uh, answer. And, and he, he's been impressive. I don't know if he was like that as, as a young guy getting into the sport, you guys would know better than I, but he's certainly the most popular and most recognizable name and face in formula one. How, how did he get here? Well, with Lewis, uh, again, the story goes back right to when he was about four or five years old. He actually started off in remote control car racing. And there's some great footage of him uh, on a very popular British TV show uh, for children called Blue Peter. Uh, and there's some footage of him racing remote control cars. And he was winning against adults and stuff like that at five years old. And again, it's another story of father and son. And uh, his dad bought him a go-kart when he was six years old uh, for, for Christmas. And um, it kind of went from there. There was success. But they were really 
struggling for money. Um, so Anthony Hamilton, Lewis's father, took on about three or four different jobs at one time. He quit his job as uh, uh, working in IT so that he could go freelance and take on other roles and do all this kind of stuff. And he was doing everything he possibly could to get Lewis as many opportunities as he could to go racing and uh, and succeed. And then eventually, eventually, Lewis got picked up by McLaren, which, of course, is a team we know now. But this was at a time when McLaren were the team to beat in Formula One back in uh, 1998. And so uh, from there, he got the backing of Ron Dennis, who was then the McLaren team boss. And that led to lots of opportunities, funding in his career. And he really accelerated through um, to Formula One in 2007. And this was the unusual thing about Lewis Hamilton's career is that he went in straight in at a top team, straight in with McLaren. Most drivers go in with a team at the back of the grid. They do a couple of years learning their trade, make a lot of mistakes. Lewis was straight in there uh, up the top. All of that pressure, and that's always been there. And it's funny you should say he's, you know, he, he is such a good speaker now. He's so eloquent on so many issues, on you know, social change, on the environment. Yeah. There's so many things which he, he touched on. But it was different back then, and understandably, because you know he was young, to, you know, uh, early twenties, kind of making his name in Formula One, not wanting to make any mistakes. But there was just this massive, massive media pressure, and of course, uh, the first black driver in Formula mm-hmm. One. That was a huge thing, and. You know, that, I think that's uh, one of the reasons why Lewis is so incredibly tough, because even if you look at, back at some of the casting videos uh, from his from his youth when he was a kid, and he was talking then about the racism he faced mm-hmm. at a car track. You know, we're talking about a 10-year-old, 11-year-old kid having to deal with that. And then his kind of way of dealing with it was to go out and beat them on track. And so, um, you know, he's just such a remarkable individual. And I think that's why... Um, now he's such a great ambassador for the sport because he's yes. been through stuff that a lot of us can never ever imagine and come out the other side as really, you know, statistically the greatest driver of all time. I think, Katie, you would argue the greatest driver of all time. And a lot of people would be with you on that. Yeah, I, I've been so impressed following him just in the last four or five years since I've, you know, entered the sport as a fan. Um, Although I wish I maybe would have gotten involved sooner because this year hasn't been uh, the most exciting for Mercedes fans. Nate, do you think that, you know, they, they finish on a high note or do you think that struggles are going to continue for, for the team? No, I think that we've started to see that there's, there's some real signs of progress there. I think the real question is whether it's going to be this year or next year that we see Lewis and George Russell in that car to kind of challenge to win races it definitely looks a lot bleak, doesn't it, than it did a few months ago when their car basically just wouldn't stop bouncing everywhere it went. It does look better. And I think that a confident and happy Lewis is a, is a good Lewis. And he's much happier now that he's got a few podiums under his belt than he was uh, a few races ago. So, yeah, I think they'll be back. Absolutely. I've always said, you know, same with Max Verstappen. With Lewis, you just can't write him off ever. You know, he. I think if things had gone differently at Silverstone, I think he had a shot of winning that race. Um, you know, he's won a race every single year of his career. He's had great cars. He's had bad cars. So he is, if you were building a Mount Rushmore of, of F1 drivers, I always say you'd put Lewis straight on there. Um, doesn't matter what you think, you know, if you think he is the greatest, he's, you know, he's a huge part of F1's history. So yeah, I think he'll be back. And um, I've actually, I've actually told everyone I know that Lewis will win a race this year. So I'm sticking to it. Uh, that's my ride or die this year. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm going to stay with it now. We're so far into the season. Yeah. I can't back right now. <laughs> no, no, you can't. And I'm sticking to it as well. Um, yeah, it'd be awesome to see him win. Um, and just watching kind of this, um, the emotional toll for him has been interesting this season. And, and as you mentioned, when he's happy, uh, I think a lot of people are happy as well. So you want to see that man smiling. Uh, another man who um, was smiling 
recently after what has been heartache after heartache is Charles Leclerc. And, you know, he replaced Lewis Hamilton in terms of, you know, following uh, and nipping at uh, Max Verstappen's heels this season in the Ferrari. I I had a pleasure of sitting down with him in Miami and, you know, I was, I was really impressed with his thoughtfulness. Um, He seems like such a genuinely nice human being, but at the same time in an ultra competitor, I remember asking him, what do you have to do to podium here? And, and he was like, we don't want to get on the podium. We want to win. And, and, you know, that was at that time, the confidence that he had in the car and in the team. Um, and certainly they've, they've had their ups and downs, but when you look at, you know, Charles's journey to Ferrari, uh, it feels like everyone knew how great he could be since he was in the karting days uh, as well. Yeah. And I can remember, uh, I think it was t- 2015, 2016. So 2016 was when he was in GP3. You hear in the media center, you'll hear people that follow a lot of the junior categories. You'll hear a name every so often. Piastri right now is a name that you know you you hear a lot more of when people have been covering it. I remember hearing Charles Leclerc's name over and over again. And I was like, what is the deal with this guy? Like, I know he's very quick, and we you know, we will see the the Formula Two and Formula Three on the on the screens. And it was very clear from as soon as Leclerc got it was called GP3 back then, Formula Three, as soon as he was as soon as he was rising through the ranks and he was into the F1 feeder series, he was just clearly going to make it, um, you know, and clearly going to be a superstar growing up. And yeah, as soon as he got that Ferrari link, it was a question of kind of when, not if. Um, and really every time Charles has entered anything, he's, he's just, he's just excelled at it. You know, he won GP three in his first season, won formula two in his first season, got to Alfa Romeo, had a pretty impressive rookie season. And you can tell it was an impressive year because by the end of that year, Ferrari said, we're going to, pull you straight up to the you know to the to the top team and ferrari have always been quite reluctant to do that they've not always been that keen to promote younger drivers up there you know they've always been a bit reluctant about it and then in his first season i remember uh from pretty much the second race charles seemed like the team leader there you know vettel was struggling and Mm -hmm. it was a couple pole positions and you talked about heartache katie on track, Charles has dealt with so much of this. You know, he, he basically had an engine issue that cost him his first win uh, in Bahrain one year. He kept getting pole positions and just it just kept not happening for him. And he's quite a resilient guy, you know. And this, sadly, there's a lot of kind of tragedy off, off, off track for him as well. So his godfather was Jules Bianchi, who was killed in 2014. Um, uh, so, well, died in 2015, but from um, injuries he sustained in 2014 at the Japanese Grand Prix. And Charles Leclerc's father passed away uh, before he made it to Formula One as well. So he's raced with all of this stuff coming into ra- uh, coming into Formula One. And then, of course, um, Antoine Hubert, one of his really good friends, was killed just before what turned out to be Charles Leclerc's first win in F1. So he's shown unbelievable resilience in his career, just you know, dealing with these things, which each one of those individually must have taken a huge toll on him. And I don't want to say he he reacts as if they don't affect him, but he gives the appearance as though they don't affect him. And I think that 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 always shows a great amount of character within someone. Um, so I think when he has on-track struggles, I've always felt that Charles is very good at, at putting those into context of, okay, well, this isn't the worst thing in the world. It's it's bad. It's obviously annoying, but he's had real setbacks in his life that have obviously been a lot more painful. And I get the impression that he's he's quite good at, at kind of putting those things into context. And he clearly was annoyed this year at how things were going, but I think a lot of other drivers might have reacted a lot worse to that. You know, he had five races, not sure. even being on the podium after we were all basically saying, well, Charles Leclerc's going to win the championship this year, right? You know, he'd won two and three races. So he's, his, his rise has really been unstoppable. He feels like Verstappen in the same way. As soon as he walked through the gates for the first time of the F1 paddock, everyone basically said, that guy's a superstar. 
he's going to be a world champion. And I think if he gets, you know, Ferrari get the car in the right place and they're able to make better strategy calls going forward, then he's got a great chance. Um, but yeah, he's always, he's just one of those guys you look at and you're just like, he's an absolute superstar. And we've joked about it before, but I, I also look at him and I'm like, not only are you an incredibly successful Formula One driver, but is without a doubt the best looking driver that everyone's oh, yeah. had for a pretty long time. So I'm just like, he's just been blessed an abundance of things he's been blessed with almost unfairly. Um, but yeah, just a very, very nice guy as well. Very difficult to root against, uh, Leclerc, sure. I think so. You know, hopefully he can make a fight of it this year. And it seems that, you know, if it's if it's purely down to him and if he's got the things he needs, then, you know, fingers crossed he can. But yeah, a brilliant, brilliant talent. And um, I think we're lucky that we've got him and Max kind of potentially at points in their careers where they can fight each other in fairly equal equal machinery because they're kind of generational talents. So it's pretty yeah. lucky. Lawrence, how would you describe Charles on track persona? It's interesting. He's incredibly quick, uh, but he is prone to the odd error. And that's uh, what we see often with young drivers when they come up. Max was the same, but probably had a few more years, um, you know, to kind of flush out the system before he got shot at the title. So even Imola this year, there was that spin when he was chasing down the Red Bulls. And, you know, he was so eager to get after them and he made a mistake. But the other side to that is that he's very critical of himself openly and in the media. I mean, I think all these drivers... Uh, all the successful ones anyway do have to be critical of themselves because they look at what they've done wrong they learn from it and they kind of you know reset themselves for the next race but Charles is actually willing to do this uh, whilst talking to us in the media which is quite mm-hmm. uh, uh, well it's kind of a unique trait actually in Formula 1 drivers at the moment and very different to Max you know Ma- Max you know if he makes a mistake and he rarely does but when he does um, you know he just denies it you know it wasn't my fault or you know it was the other driver you know that was trying to overtake in the wrong place yeah. and all this kind of stuff very defensive and Charles is the opposite so seeing those two go up against each other um it's like seeing uh two very different approaches to Formula One driving uh going into competition with each other and the other interesting thing about all that is that they've been doing this for years they did it in go-karts so um anyone who's kind of flicked through kind of go-kart videos of uh Charles and Max from when they were younger they would have seen this one where they collided and uh Verstappen uh kind of you know is quite happy with Charles and Charles is asked about it instantly he goes well nothing just an incident and that's it you know like and it's just so typical of, of Charles you know he's kind of he, he he kind of doesn't get so worked up about things but then he is openly critical of himself so yeah really interesting character um in Formula One and I think everything is there for him to go and win a title but he just needs um the team as well he needs Ferrari to kind of make sure that they have everything together uh to, to beat Max and Red Bull. And I think his, right, let, his personality yeah. is quite an interesting one. Just to just to jump in on that as well, I think that one thing that would serve Leclerc better going forward is I've always wondered if he's a bit too nice about how he approaches Ferrari strategy mm. and stuff like that. You know, we we talk about Max and Lewis, their radio messages, you know, their radio their race engineers have to have pretty thick skin. Charles, I think, maybe sometimes is a bit too happy to hear Ferrari say plan B, plan C, whatever. Um, and we're starting now to see that he's actually fighting back a bit more, but I always had the impression that maybe one thing he wasn't so good at was actually saying to the team, this is what we're doing. I'm right. Mm-hmm. You guys are wrong. Lewis and Max never mind doing that. And, you know, the radio messages always sound like they're being petulant, but there's a reason they win so many races. So hopefully Charles can get a bit of an edge to him. And I think that that will help kind of, that's the one thing he needs, in my opinion, to really stand out and be up there with Max. I'm not saying he has to become a full diva or a full, go full heel or anything like that to use a wrestling term but mm-hmm. he does need a bit more of a kind of a bad streak to him i think to just just especially when you're at ferrari like you need to 
you need to sometimes take that by the scruff of the neck and say we're doing this so um maybe that's something that we're going to start to see now kind of emerge now that he's got this championship potentially championship winning, winning car well, we did see that viral interaction between he and Mattia Bonotto after the Austrian Grand Prix, where Mattia was kind of pointing that finger. And I think Charles said, oh, he was just cheering me up, which I've never been cheered up uh, with somebody pointing their finger at me. But um, who knows? Maybe that was Charles coming off saying, I am unhappy, but Mattia said, this isn't the time or the place. Let's talk about it later. So maybe he is kind of developing that where he speaks up more. Um, all right, let's transition to our next driver. And I don't feel like he needs uh, much introduction. If you've seen Drive to Survive, uh, you've probably fell in love with this driver because um, he's goofy, he's quirky, he's uh, been on the cover of GQ for his good looks and his style. Uh, and you know by now that I'm talking about Daniel Ricardo. And before we dive into his struggles this year, guys, you know, let's go back to what's been an interesting journey from Red Bull to Renault and then ultimately to McLaren. Lawrence, what have you, you thought of the evolution of his career in F1? Yeah, well, funnily enough, his first race was my first race. And he started at a team which no longer exists, which was the Hispania racing team, HRT. And he was um, then I remember his first media session on the Thursday at Silverstone. He came in mid-season, as did I. And uh, he kind of sat next to me and he looked at my notepad. He's like, oh, ESPN, cool. And then like that just started a conversation. And this is a great thing about Daniel. He's always been like that. He's just really engaging personality. And I think what we saw on Netflix, of course, like lots of people love him because of that. But he is really like that. You know, I mean, there's a thing about never meet your heroes. Well, if your hero is Daniel Ricciardo, definitely go try and meet him because he's <laughs> such a nice guy and so chilled out. Um, so, yeah, he's I mean, he, he, he's a fantastic guy in the paddock. And. I think we're all kind of praying and hoping that his season turns around and he starts to, uh, to to get back on form because at the moment it's not looking too good. But I'm actually going to hand over the kind of more biographical stuff to Nate because little known fact, Nate actually wrote a book on Daniel Ricciardo. I did. Thank you for the free time. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I wrote a book called... Oh, i got to uh, buy this book. book. Yeah, so it's funny because the story itself behind the book is funny, which I've told Ricardo and he found it very funny. It was cover to cover Red Bull uh, kind of pictures, branding. And it was, it came, I, I started writing it end of 2017. It came out mid 2018, came out on August the 2nd, 2018. And then on August the 3rd, I was in Chicago and I woke up to the news that Daniel Ricciardo has said he will move from Red Bull to Renault for next year, which was a huge surprise. And suddenly I realized this book that was just basically an ode to Ricciardo at Red Bull was no longer as relevant as it had been 24 hours before. Um, but his journey has been really interesting. You know, he, Lawrence is absolutely right. You know, he is exactly the same as what you see on Netflix. And that's always, that's always what I tell people is that sometimes you do wonder, is this legitimate? Is this guy playing mm -hmm. up for the cameras? But he is just like that. He's just a really, just a really friendly guy. And just before I go on to like his history of stuff, one thing that's really nice about Ricardo is when you, when you talk to McLaren um, uh, comms managers, they'll say, Ricardo's always asking, what's this journalist's name again? Or, you know, this, this journalist here, who does he work for? He's genuinely very interested about the people that are asking him questions. And he's quite an easy guy to build a relationship with for that reason, because he's just, like Lauren said, you sit down and you, you, you can kind of just chat to him about stuff. I remember once me and him in the middle of a press session, I think I, I had uh, in Baku in 20. 19 i had my foot in a in a boot i stood on a football playing five aside in england and ricardo kept looking at it and he was like so what did you do and i told him about the injury 
And he was basically then just like, you sound like you sound like you're a proper clumsy guy. And he kept like joking that he was going to kick my, my foot, which had severely sprained. I'd severely torn like some of my ligaments there. So I was kind of like, I think he's kidding. And he just, yeah, he kept seeing me and kept like joking. He was going to take my crutch away and stuff like that. And it was just, it just felt like you were chatting to someone you knew from school rather than a Formula One driver. So a really good guy and really easy to root for. Um, he, the, the dad's a, a key part of this episode everybody's dad when it comes to racing mm. is is super important and uh, daniel's dad joe was actually a racer in australia he never made it to you know anything we would call kind of big time but daniel grew up watching his dad race and quickly went to adelaide grand prix and you know started wanted to get into it and he made the move to europe when he was really young i spoke to him about when he joined the red bull program they moved him to italy he was in um one of the italian um uh, categories lower down and he basically said they, they moved him into the middle of Italy. I forget the name of the village off the top of my head, but he was in the middle of nowhere. And as the name suggests, he's got some Italian heritage to him, but he couldn't speak much Italian then either. So he said he basically stayed in this tiny little bedsit and there would be a few of them in the Red Bull program. And they basically just, you know, he felt like he was kind of in a mini Australia. It was hot. He could get on his bike. He could cycle around. Um, and he said he just felt he, he constantly asked himself, what am I doing here? And so I think for him, getting to F1 was kind of the affirmation of all those sacrifices that he had made. Um, and his, his, his story through F1 is really fascinating because, as Lawrence said, started out with HRT. He was on loan from Red Bull, went to Toro Rosso, which is now AlphaTauri, but has always served as their junior team. And 2013 was kind of a shootout between him and Jean-Éric Verne. And at the time, Verne seemed like the more likely guy to to move up and, and, and go to Red Bull, but it actually turned out to be Ricardo who went there. And then he basically surprised all of us. 2014 was the first season I did with ESPN. The best, the best storyline from that season was that Ricardo completely outperformed Sebastian Vettel that year. You know, Vettel was not just a four-time world champion, but he'd won the last four championships consecutively. So he was as big in his career as he could get. And Ricardo won three races that year. I remember by the end of the year, Fernando Alonso was like, this guy's absolutely amazing. Um, and he just went from strength to strength. And I, I've always been fascinated by what would have happened if it stayed with Red Bull. You know, Verstappen arriving there really kind of changed yeah. the dynamic of the team. And, you know, I've spoken to Ricardo and the guys around him quite a lot. And I think it was clear in 2018 that Ricardo felt that this team's moving more towards Verstappen. Verstappen has a lot more influence here. You know, Red Bull have bet big on Verstappen. And to be fair to Red Bull, that's been completely justified. We've seen that 100% that that was, it wasn't like they backed the wrong horse there. They backed one of the best drivers probably that F1's ever going to see. And I think Ricardo kind of got lost a bit in the shuffle there. And the move to Renault was fascinating because at the time, no one saw that coming. I mean, that was, I, I remember waking up and I thought, I must have had too much to drink last night because this can't be, this can't be a legitimate news story. Someone, is it April, is it April 1st? Is it one of these April Fool stories? But it was legit. And the thought, the thought for him at the time was he thought, well, I can either stay here at Red Bull and in his mind, he's like, the, the risk is this team moves more towards Max. Maybe I don't perform well against him and my stock gets ruined alongside him. And the two-year deal, I mean, Renault paid him a lot of money first off. So that was that was one big, big part of the move. I don't think he's ever kind of said, that, you know, he didn't move for money, um, you know, solely for money. Like money is always a consideration of those things. But Mercedes was always the thing he wanted. And He's, he's changed agents now. He, he did have one and he's moved to CAA Sports. And the one thing he always wanted was he said, I want, I want to be ready when, when Mercedes come calling for another driver, I want to be ready. And there were definitely talks between the two parties when he was at Renault, definitely talks in 2018. And Mercedes, I always felt just used him as a pawn in their discussions with Bottas, basically. And th there was a suggestion at one point that maybe he would have a one-year deal for 2019. 
Um, but he didn't want it. He said, what's the point of me having a one-year deal and then basically just being flushed out of Mercedes after a year, which is a pretty bold call to make because it would have been one of the best cars of all time. That's not to say Mercedes were fully committed to giving him that, but that was what they were kind of talking about. So there's a lot of what-if moments with him. Um, and obviously, it's really easy to look at what Verstappen's done at Red Bull and say, Ricardo could have had the championship winning car. I've always found it funny that on that final lap last year, you had Lewis and Max, Max passing Lewis. The car behind, with the best view in the world of what was going on, was Daniel Ricciardo sat in that in that McLaren that was a lap down. And that was one of the controversial yeah. things, wasn't it? He wasn't allowed to unlap himself. And he was just sat there watching this thing unfold in front of him. And I've always wondered whether he was watching that and thinking, I wonder if I'd done things differently, would that be me in that car? passing Lewis or, you know, would that be me in this car winning the championship? Must have crossed his mind. I've asked him about it and he's very good at going around it. And I genuinely do believe him when he says he's got no regrets. I think he's over that yes. side of it. He's admitted that it did bug him for a while that he maybe had made the wrong call. But um, yeah, I think he's, that's one thing that's good with him. He's always very honest with us. He's very frank. You know, he doesn't, you always feel like you're getting a fairly honest answer with him on stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's probably his best chance to win a championship. McLaren is not going so well for him. I hope that this year they'd be closer to the front and we'd maybe see some more from him. But like you said, he's not really doing that well at the moment. And if you take away that win in Monza last year, his last two years have looked completely ordinary. And I always feel bad because so many fans have come into the sport from watching Netflix and thinking, I want to, I want to support Danny Ricciardo. And they've almost got this, they've got this kind of this version of him that just is not anything like the Daniel Ricciardo of a few years ago when he was at Red Bull. So that's a real shame. And it's hard to tell people over and over again, this guy used to be amazing because he did. And it's just so far from where we see him week on week now. We hope that he can find the results um, and start to trend in the right direction. Because as you mentioned, the personality would certainly be a loss if he's not involved in F1 anymore. So Lawrence, is there speculation that, that Daniel will not be with McLaren moving forward, or do we think that we'll see him in the driver's seat in 2023? Yeah, there's plenty of speculation uh, around it. And it's, I think it's partly because we've got a season where a lot of the top seats are already settled. We know there's long contracts in place for a lot of the top drivers. So then the attention moves further down, but it's also coming from McLaren. McLaren keeps dropping hints that maybe they want, another driver to come in you know they've got a few uh drivers uh who they're testing i mean colton herter an american driver is one of those who often gets linked to it um oscar piastri who is the f2 champion from last year currently sitting out of any racing because once you win the f2 championship you're not allowed to race in it again and he didn't get an f1 seat also being linked to mclaren in recent weeks but from what we understand at least uh it's daniel's decision so the team can't just boot him out the contract is apparently watertight from that side, but if Daniel wants to walk away, he can. Good. But there's no indication that Daniel does. So, um, I mean, the information we have at the moment is that um, is that uh, Daniel staying. But hey, you know, this is F1; it moves quickly. So even by the time people listen to this, who knows how that story would have moved on? But that's the information we have right now. And I think All it's right. been easy yeah. to, to just quickly on that to doubt Ricardo's kind of motivation to continue because at one point I thought, is he going to keep going? But I think he is committed and I think he still thinks he can get back to that top level. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if McLaren really have an option which is like a straight out of the box is going to be better than Ricardo straight out. Like Piastri is very good, but will he adapt to F1 quickly? You know, Gasly's obviously a race winner, but we, we saw him struggle when he was at Red Bull under that pressure. Um, 
Colton Hurt has not driven an F1 car until this week. So is he is he going to really step in and, and be as good as somebody who's won that many races? So I'm not sure. I think that this is us all getting carried away a bit because there's nothing else to talk about in terms of driver market. Um, I fully expect Daniel will be there next year. Um, but that year is basically a complete audition for a, a contract extension, isn't it? It feels like he has a lot to do to convince McLaren that he's worth the money for a, you know an extension. Because right now, if you were Zach Brown, you wouldn't offer him a new deal. And I don't think anyone would blame Zach Brown for, for that on the on the sure. form we've had. So pretty interesting situation. And um, But like Lawrence said, I mean, we could do this and in a week, they, McLaren could be like, we've torn the deal up. <laughs> we're moving on. That is what Formula One's like. So this could age badly pretty quickly. <laughs> well, let's stick with the McLaren garage for our next driver. Mr. Lando Norris, who is one of the most prim- promising drivers on the grid. Before we jump into his journey, Do you think people expected Lawrence Lando to outperform Ricardo as he has this year? No, I don't think so. I think when Daniel joined last year, everyone thought that that they'd be probably closely matched because Lando had a bit more experience of the team. Mm -hmm. But Daniel came in and he really struggled with the car. You know, it it was very different to the car he had at Renault, which in turn had been very different from the car he had at Red Bull. So he was jumping between these cars and struggling, struggling to adapt. Meanwhile, Lando, who has had this relatively long history with McLaren, is really plugged into that team. And so he was performing right to his very best. And then we had the rules reset over the winter and everyone thought, ah, well, you know, this could be Daniel's chance to shine. You know, it's more, they're kind of starting from zero against each other. And again, it's Lando who's kind of really, if anything, accelerated further ahead. And Daniel's showing flashes of of his old self this year, but more often than not, it's certainly not consistent enough and it's not on Lando's level. So yeah, that is a surprise. You know, that is a surprise. But I think that speaks a lot to how good Lando Norris is. You know, we talked about Charles Leclerc earlier. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about George Russell as well. You know, Mm -hmm. this young kind of group of drivers, they really are that good. And in my mind, you know, for the next 10 years or so of Formula One, it's going to be Max Verstappen, Charles Leclerc, Lando Norris and George Russell definitely in the mix uh, for titles as long as they've got a car to be able to put their name up there. Uh, and then we might have others join in, but I think those four mm-hmm. are really all on a level which is incredibly high, and we're incredibly lucky to see them all racing against each other right now. So, Nate, how did Lando arrive at McLaren, and what does his current deal look like? Yeah, so Lando has is a bit like Charles Leclerc. His name has been just bouncing around in motor racing for ages, and the difference with him was first time I saw a picture of this Lando Norris kid that everyone was talking about. He looked like a, he genuinely looked like a child. He looked like he was about 10 years old. And the, the reason was, was because he, he was about 14. I think I met him at the Autosport Awards in 2016 and he won, he won an award there. And I remember going up to him and he was, I, I felt like I was talking to my, my, my cousin who is exactly the same age as Lando Norris. He was this kid who looked at me. He was in a really, like a tuxedo that didn't fit him. He, he kind of was absolutely petrified of every single person there including me. And we were just like, you know, cause I just, I just thought, well, it might be good to go meet this kid. He might be pretty good. And the reason why there was such hype around and buzz around him when he was young is that ev- again, everything he did, it's the same story really with this golden generation, everything he did, he won. And just to look at his resume coming into formula one, he, he won every championship. So 2014 karting world championship, 2015, he won a, champ- a for- formula called MSA formula 2016 won Toyota racing series, won formula Renault that year, won formula Renault again, the following year, then won, uh, the F3 European Championship. So literally everything he did, he won. And he then came into um, Formula 2 and there was this great year where it was him and Alex Albon and George Russell. Um, and 
there's just been this feeling about um, about Norris that he's this kind of can't-miss prospect. And 2017 was when McLaren signed him. I can remember actually being at a service station um, with another journalist, Chris Medland, when the news came through and we suddenly started writing about it. And I asked Chris, who knew quite, who knew McLaren and Lando quite well, I said, is this guy as good as everyone says? And he was like, mate, he's unbelievably good. And Lando's always proven that, you know, he's come in and he's always been pretty quick. And I find him, I, f- I find Lando of this, of this generation, the most fascinating. So older listeners, this is one for you now. And younger, li- this is going to really mm-hmm. age me. But I once mentioned, we went to a, uh, an esports event and I was talking to Lando and I mentioned that when I was young, I wouldn't have been able to do esports gaming, which is something Lando loves doing because of the dial-up, the internet dial-up that you used to have to go through when you had to sit there and listen to that awful noise. And he looked back at me blankly and he said, what, what, what's dial-up? And I just said, you know, the internet dial-up tone, you must know that. He was like, I've never heard of that in my life. And I suddenly realized like this guy he was born in 1999. You know, he didn't grow up like, you know, he, 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 is, he, is, he is as Gen Z as they come. You know, he is the face <laughs> of Gen Z, in my opinion, anyway. You know, he loves gaming. He kind of, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't really know what the internet was like before he before he used it and stuff like that. So, so he's he's exactly kind of like how he comes across, and he's he's I think quite introverted, or at least he he came across like that when he started out. And he's actually it's remarkable to see him and the way he's grown as he's come into Formula One because he now talks about mental health. You know, he's really open about yeah. it. And I never thought if if you'd asked me before the pandemic which of these drivers is going to be really open up about their mental health. It would not have been Lando Norris. I just would have thought he's too young. He's not, you know, he's not quite emotionally mature enough to do that yet. But he's proven that's not the case. So his his rise has just been, you know, it's been up and up and up. And McLaren, you know, they've signed him to this long term contract, and that's there's a reason why. You know, um, Lawrence has mentioned we're lucky to have this golden generation right now. You've got Verstappen tied down for the future with Red Bull. You've got Leclerc tied down for the future with Ferrari. Russell tied down to the future with Mercedes, and Norris tied down to the future with McLaren. So all of their hopes of winning championships kind of depends on how those teams do but zach brown who's the ceo of mclaren saw him a long long time ago and it was one of the first things he really one of the biggest things he did when he took over that team and it'd been run by ron dennis for so long he said we've got to get a young guy you know lewis hamilton is the famous young driver they had before lando norris the british the british press could not stop referring to him as the new lewis hamilton when he came in and that's why because he was a young guy british guy who just seemed incredibly quick who'd come into the team so um, he, he obviously hasn't lived up to the Lewis Hamilton kind of resume yet, but he's not had he's not had anywhere near as many years as that. But I think if he again, if he gets that car to do that, I think he can have an amazing career. So, yeah, his rise. It might sound like we're repeating the points, but these four drivers, especially, have just had exactly the same thing every single time they've jumped in a car. They just seem to be able to drive, you know, better than anyone else. And I think that to go back to Ricardo is probably one of the reasons Ricardo struggled so much is mm-hmm. Norris is just really making him look very ordinary. And I think that that's kind of down to how good Norris is as much as down to Ricardo struggling so much. So yeah, another, another amazing talent and another really popular guy as well. Like he's, he's yeah, really he come is. out of the shell quite a lot. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it just, uh, I, I don't know if people have a favorite of the young guys, but Lando seems to be a lot of people's favorite driver just because he's on the internet. very genuine. Yeah. Very genuine. Yeah. And just, yeah, just seems to be having a good time all the time. So. People, people seem to love him on social media, especially. Uh, let, let's discuss the fourth driver the two of you keep mentioning. Just as Zach Brown was watching Lando Norris uh, for quite some time, Toto Wolf was doing the same thing with George Russell. I had a chance to sit down with him in Miami, and he's the perfect company man. Uh, he's always very buttoned up. I would say sometimes a, a little rigid. I kind of want him to come out of his shell a little bit more and 
have some fun like you see Ricardo doing or Lando doing, but maybe that's just not part of his personality. I mean, Lawrence, you get to talk to him, you see him uh, on a regular basis. You know, what's, what's George like to cover and be around? He is a bit like that. I think it's uh, one of his strengths as well, uh, you know, because you can see it's a weakness. He's a bit bummed up, a bit uptight. But it's definitely one of his strengths. And actually, his relationship with Toto Wolf is quite interesting because uh, George managed to get hold of his email in 2014 and he was doing a GP3 test at Abu Dhabi and he sent Toto an email at about 10.30 at night. I think he's stressed about it, trying to get all the words in right, the grammar correct and all that. Eventually pressed send at 10.30 thinking, well, he's not going to respond to me anyway. You know, if he does, it'll probably be in a month or so. 15 minutes later, Toto had responded saying, I'm impressed by your CV, let's set up a meeting. And they went from there. But here's another thing about George and that meeting with Toto is that Toto met him and it was when George was in Formula 3 and Toto said, look, I think if you want to advance your future, go with Mucka Motorsport, they've got Mercedes engines, you know, we might be able to work something out for you from there. But George had tested with a team called Carlin, uh, which was using Volkswagen engines, and he was convinced that Carlin was the one to go for. So he ignored Toto Wolff's advice from their first meeting, went his own way, and yet still, of course, as we know now, came all the way back around and is now a Mercedes driver. But I think it's that, you know, he's headstrong. He, you know, he, know what, he knows what he wants. Uh, he thinks he knows how to get it, and he does it, you know, his way. I think... There are times when he seems a little bit uptight and you're like, come on, George, just loosen up of it, you know, just kind of undo that top button and like, you know, just show us a little bit more of the character because it's definitely there. It is, it is there underneath it. Um, but he's, uh, he's a good character, but just also incredibly quick. I mean, Nate talked about Lando and how Lando won everything until he came up against George in Formula 2 and George beat him. And I think quite often, because he spent those years at Williams uh, from 2019 through to last year, a lot of people look at George and like, oh, well, he's clearly good, but you know, he was never really in a position or in a car that could really uh, you know, mix it with the front guys. And so we saw some flashes of brilliance, but everyone's like, oh, you know, he never quite got the look in that Charles got, that Max obviously had winning races and that Lando gets. Sure. Now he's in the Mercedes, we're seeing it, because he's up against Lewis, and so far this season, he's outperforming Lewis Hamilton. And, you know, I think whilst that is surprising, and whilst I think it's partly due to the problems that team's had over the first few races, it also shows just how good George Russell is. Don't underestimate him. He's really one of the top drivers in Formula One and will continue to be for at least another 10 years, I think. What's impressed you most, Nate? Is it the fact that he's handled a car that's seemingly had its difficulties or is it just the consistency that he's shown throughout this season? Yeah, I think I think it's exactly that. I think it's the consistency. And one thing, I mean, it, it took so much out of Nico Rosberg beating Lewis Hamilton that he quit at the end of 2016. Like, he was like, I can't do this anymore. Can't race against this guy. Bottas is a very good driver and he just could not match that level of Lewis every week. And like Lawrence said, George has just dropped into this team against one of the greatest drivers of all time. And it, it's just been like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm quick. So what? You know, I, I really thought he was going to struggle early on and he's been completely different to that. And I think that speaks to his mental strength more than anything. Um, and yeah, I just think he's, he's blown away any expectations I had for him. Um, Lawrence has always been a huge fan of his. So I have to concede to, that Lawrence has always called this one much better than me. Um, I just want to add, I agree with everything Lawrence said. The thing with Russell that gets me and we kind of joke about it in the media center, can't work his accent out. We cannot work it out. Some of the words he says, some of the ways he pronounces things, just we, we always think, we're like, where, where is it? And I, f- I feel like sometimes I don't know whether he says words because they're, they're, you know, it's like company speak almost, but it's a fun game we play in the media center, some of the things he says. Um, but like, like Lawrence said, unbelievably quick. Um, he gives me the vibe of someone who was like head boy at school. That's a very British reference, yes. but 
you know, somebody who was just very, never missed a day of school, was always, you know, putting his hand up, asking for more homework, but he was a straight A student. And, you know, ultimately that's what you need to be in Formula One. He's a much more attractive Percy Weasley uh, from Harry Potter, if you get that reference. That's a much um, better reference. Be a- that's a much better <laughs> reference than mine. <laughs> but he's still so much fun to watch, uh, buttoned up or not. All right, let's wrap up this conversation with a couple of OGs uh, who are both multiple-time world champions. And if you're new to the sport, you might not realize that Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel are total badasses uh, and are still feared on the track. So Nate, you recently said you think Alonzo is possibly the third best driver on the track behind Max and Lewis. Why don't you explain why and take us through Alonzo's career? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Alonzo is a, such a fascinating character and one day we've got to do a full episode just on him because he, I mean, he's, he's as, he's as brilliant as he is frustrating as a person and as a driver, but he's the guy that ended Schumacher's run of dominance in the two thousands. You know, he, he, unlike Lewis, he started out at Minardi, which was a, a backmarking team, you know, was clearly quick from the beginning, went to Renault and Renault, he kind of joined as their project was really evolving. He gets there, wins in 20, 2005 and then wins in 2006. And in 2006, if you'd asked anybody, right, there's going to be a set, there's going to be a seven time world champion on the grid in 15 years time from now, who's it going to be? You would say, well, it's Fernando Alonso, obviously. You wouldn't have thought it was Lewis and Seb, who both at that point were basically you know, babies in, in terms of Formula You know, they, they, I think Sebastian had had one race by that point, and Lewis was about to make his debut as Alonso's teammate. And 2007 is kind of the crossroads moment of his career. I think he went to McLaren with the expectation of being team leader there. Lewis Hamilton was his teammate, and he couldn't quite beat Lewis in the way that maybe he thought he could. And his career just imploded from that point. And we can... I don't want to get too much into the weeds of it, but there was a whole scandal at McLaren that kind of, he wasn't explicitly involved in it, but the way he handled knowing about certain things of it really basically meant that McLaren got rid of him. He went back to Renault for two years, then he got a Ferrari drive. And the thing with Fernando that's so fascinating and frustrating on track is if he'd scored five points at various points in his career, he could be a five-time world champion, but he's a two-time world champion. He lost so many championships by the skin of his teeth. 2007, uh, 2010 and 2012. 2012 was one of the most impressive seasons anyone's ever had, in my opinion, in Formula One, because he nearly won a championship in a car that wasn't quite up there all year. And that's so rare to do in Formula One. Um, but the thing with Fernando Alonso that makes him so frustrating is he's incredibly quick. Um, I think he's he's able to get the best out of any car he drives. His problem has always been that he's just backstage, or, or sorry, behind the scenes even. He is just... he. He's just a bit toxic. I, I think maybe he's less so now, but you know when he was younger, coming through, he just burnt so many bridges. You know, he left McLaren under a cloud. He left Ferrari under a cloud. He went to IndyCar and tried to win the Indy 500, and then Andretti didn't want him back. Honda didn't want to work with him again. He went to Toyota. There's a great story from Toyota that I'll just tell quickly. I know I'm just rambling on about how much I love and dislike my love-hate relationship with Fernando Alonso. There was one race um, in the World Endurance Championship, so he won Le Mans with with Toyota. Like that was one of the crowning points of his career. Yeah. Um, but later in that season, he raced and he was taken out of the car and he wasn't happy with things. And so he stormed out. He said, I'm, I'm going home. And they said, well, you need to stay here and do another stint in the car, which eventually, you know, they, they, they've just worked around the, the other two teammates did the stints in a different order. Um, and no one had heard from Fernando. His, his car went and won the race. And then as his two teammates were walking out to the podium, out of nowhere, Alonso, fully in his team gear, turned up and was waving, smiling, and was on the podium with his teammates. And the team hadn't seen him for a few hours. He'd just gone home, and he'd come back, or gone to his motorhome, come back, and was for the cameras, was playing nice. Behind the scenes, had basically just walked out on the team. So that gives you an insight into the 
just I, I don't know I've always wondered with him I've always felt he's some of the advice he gets from people around him is is you know maybe not the best um and is maybe loyal to the wrong people you know loyal to a mm. fault but sometimes the people he's loyal to aren't the best for his career um sure. but if he'd made the right calls in his career I, I'm not sure if Lawrence agrees but I think we'd be talking about Fernando maybe as as a guy that's up there with Schumacher and breaking those records and sadly Fernando just hasn't quite had the decisions in place um and he's had that bad luck like I mentioned in those three seasons and it just hasn't come come off for him but I think for any any new fan coming in do not underestimate how good he is he is an unbelievably quick driver and we're seeing it at Alpine you know he every race he just seems to be getting the best out of it and he'll be the first to tell you how good he's driving that's the last that's what I'll end on the, the thing with Fernando Alonso now every time he talks to the camera he's like no one could have done what I did today and sometimes you think, well, maybe that's true, but you don't have to tell us every week, Fernando. So that's the thing with him. He's very, he's he's his number one fan. Um, but I do, I find him incredibly compelling and I do secretly root for him deep down because I think it's a great story when he does well. And um, I think it would be a shame if we never see him win a race again. So, you know, for everything I just said, I'm, I'm rooting for Fernando to win something before he, before he leaves us again. Lawrence, if that's a fair synopsis of Fernando Alonso, how does he compare to Sebastian Vettel, who has also been a part of F1 for quite some time? Yeah, I think we're dealing with two very different drivers here. Um, Sebastian, it's almost the way around. Everyone loves him, like to the point that when he leaves teams, you know, he you'll see him go back and he'll chat with mechanics and engineers and, you know, the Red Bull engineer when he was at Ferrari. Now he's at Aston Martin. He'll go and talk to Ferrari engineers and mechanics and you'll struggle to find anyone who's got a bad word to say about, about Sebastian. But the other strange thing about Sebastian's career is that it's almost uh, the wrong way around in that he started with quite a lot of success early on. I mean, he made his debut in 2007, actually with BMW, mm-hmm. um, uh, the single race at US Grand Prix, replacing Robert Kubica, scored a point on his debut. It was clear this guy was great. Got it Toro Rosso uh, the following year because he was also backed by Red Bull and BMW. Red Bull got in there and got the contract for 2008, put him in a Toro Rosso. He won in that car. And this is the old Minardi team. Nate just mentioned the the team that uh, Fernando started out with, Minardi. Well, they turned into Toro Rosso and uh, Sebastian won uh, that team's first ever race with that team, which was remarkable. And then all of a sudden he was fine for championships. Didn't quite make it in 2009, but 2010, 11, 12, 13, we were living through the Sebastian Vettel era. And it almost looked like this guy is unbeatable. You know, it, it came close in 2010. It was close again in 2012, funnily enough, both times with Fernando Alonso. Uh, but it was Sebastian that would always just somehow make it happen and win. And then he went to Ferrari. And guess who he replaced? Fernando Alonso. Uh, Alonso mm-hmm. left uh, under a bit of a cloud, as Nate mentioned. Sebastian came in, was immediately uh, loved by Ferrari, loved by the Tafosi. Uh, partly because I think they saw him as maybe like the next Michael Schumacher, German driver, Vettel idolized Schumacher. I think he tried to be like Schumacher in a number of ways. He suddenly took a lot of hints on how he kind of treats people from uh, from Schumacher. And so he was loved by that team. But one way or another, it didn't work out. And really, the, I think the real sad thing about Sebastian's career was 2018, where he had a car, he had a Ferrari capable of winning the championship, capable of challenging that dominant Mercedes that we look back at now from 2018. And it all went wrong at his home race uh, in Germany when he spun out of the lead of the race in the wet. And he's never really opened up about it, but it's clear that that was a huge turning point in that championship. He was leading the title race at that point. We're about midway through the season. And after that, just everything collapsed. Errors started happening. 
And then a few more errors happened. And then Charles Leclerc arrived on the scene and Sebastian was all of a sudden second best at Ferrari. And then it was quite sad in 2020, um, before we got the season started, because of course it was delayed due to COVID, mm -hmm. uh, we had the news that Sebastian was out of Ferrari and off he went. And, you know, he was without a team for a season. And, you know, we, we kind of thought he would retire because Sebastian as well is a driver, certainly in recent years, who has focused way outside of F1. He's looking at a lot of stuff. Uh, he's made it very clear that the environment is one of the things that is most important to him. And um, he talks about it openly. I had a recent interview with him uh, in Austria where, where we talked about it. But the one thing he did say as well was that he's not, he doesn't see F1 as his platform to talk about the environment. He still sees F1 as his platform to go and win a championship. So that fire is still burning in there. Don't believe it's mm -hmm. gone just yet. But um, but yeah, it, it is interesting to see what's uh, what's going to happen with Sebastian going forward. He's at Aston Martin now. Contracts up. Will he stay? I honestly don't know right now. I honestly don't know. But I think there's still a little bit of fire there. But it's a, it's a, it's a strange um, uh, career of his that started on such highs, looked so dominant for that period, mm -hmm. and then dropped away. But who knows? We might still see Sebastian come back. But yeah, uh, we'll have to see how how he gets on. It's always interesting hearing Alonso talk about Vettel as well. It's good you paired these two together because Alonso always, <laughs> or at least he used to like make digs about Vettel and I always felt he, he thought Vettel won championships because he had the best car, but I've always felt that was pretty harsh. Um, but like Lawrence said, I think if Alonso had been more like Sebastian, I think his career would have been a lot better too. So um, yeah, Vettel's like the, he's like the elder statesman now on the grid, isn't he? He's everyone's favourite driver, uh, yeah. which, is, which is a nice way for it to end because I think there was, a, there was a bit of time when maybe he played the kind of the pantomime villain when he was at Red Bull. And yeah, he's now kind of, it's come full circle for him. So that's good. I have to say, this is so enjoyable just hearing these personal anecdotes. Great insight from both of you. I know that there's more drivers to get to, but we're going to stop here. This is uh, another episode of Unlapped um, and we will dive into the other drivers over the summer break. And maybe we'll, you know, discuss some drivers to keep an eye on that could fill seats next year. Uh, as you guys mentioned that there, there could be some speculation for, for different seats with different teams. So until then, remember to like this video and subscribe to ESPN for F1 content. Leave us your comments about what you want to learn more about. And you can hit us up on Twitter with any questions or comments you have as well. And keep an eye out for another unlapped episode. I'm Katie George, Nate Saunders, Lawrence Edmondson. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.